I don't know if you've ever heard of this book, The Book of Heroic Failures. Um, uh, it's a, a, a striking book, really, about uh, stories of, of momentous failure, really. Um, one of my favourites is Mrs. Park, who hit the accelerator, not the brake, in her fifth driving test in Guildford and drove into the River Way. Um, uh, apparently, she and her examiner then had to climb onto the roof of the car and wait to be rescued, and the examiner was then sent, sent home in a state of shock, still clutching his clipboard. And this is the heroic bit of it. She then asked if she'd passed. <laughs> and was told, we cannot say until we've seen the examiner's report. <laughs> well, I want to talk about uh, 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 failure uh, uh, this evening. Uh, and for some here, that may not be a subject that we've had to wrestle with very much. Perhaps you've sailed through exams at school. Perhaps you never uh, uh, failed a driving test. Uh, there are some people uh, in this world, and particularly the West End of London, for whom success is just a bit of a habit. Nevertheless, the failure I want to talk about this Easter has nothing to do with exam papers at all. You see, I want to talk uh, now about spiritual failure. I want to talk about the man or woman who sets out in life with high ideals and a serious desire to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and yet who discovers at some critical point that they lack the inner resources to live up to those ideals. I don't know, perhaps they're a husband and father, and they always hoped they'd be a patient and kind Christian husband and father, and yet their wife and children have grown very wary of their rages. I'm talking about the girl from a Christian youth group who starts work in London post-university and finds herself sleeping with her boyfriend. I'm talking about the boy from a Christian home who finds himself enslaved to pornography or to drink. I'm talking about the man or woman who, in their youth, made a sincere commitment to Jesus Christ uh, in response to the gospel, but who, under the pressure of career and ambition, finds themselves a traitor to his cause. I'm talking about the Christian worker who intellectually understands grace, but who finds in reality their life is defined by bitterness and grudges. Actually, to be honest, as we head towards Easter, brothers and sisters, I'm talking about you and me, because I assure you of this, you may never have failed an exam, but we are none of us going to get through our lives without having experienced spiritual failure. It's a corollary of our fallen human nature. We are sinners. Uh, it's therefore something we all have to cope with. Jack Miller, who influenced Tim Keller very greatly uh, in the New York pastor, uh, wrote this, if the pastor's not the chief repenter, sin becomes a theoretical issue for theoretical sinners should there be any present that Sunday evening. And for those people who are naturally confident, gifted and successful and good at presenting like that, uh, for those who know little of failure in other ways, this is particularly devastating as a lesson to learn, this lesson of spiritual failure. But I assure you, the longer we go on deluding ourselves that we're invincible, then the harder will be the fall when we eventually find that we are not. And this Easter, Luke has a vital lesson to teach us in Luke chapter 22, a lesson uh, about spiritual failure. Uh, uh, and the lesson is this, though profoundly bitter, it's not in the end the key issue here. The key issue is how we respond to that failure. That's the thing. 
The key issue is the way we respond to spiritual failure, brothers and sisters. That's the thing. In a very real sense, it's not failure that condemns us, it's our response. And that's the lesson from Peter and Judas. You perhaps picked that up in our reading. Superficially, these two men have so much in common. They're both disciples of Jesus. They're not on the margins. They're in the 12. Uh, They're among his disciples. And in Luke chapter 22, this remarkable chapter, they both betray Jesus. Both of them betray him. Luke 22, verse 48, but uh, Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Perhaps the most famous kiss in history. And then Luke 22, 56, 57, a servant girl, a servant girl, uh, in some ways the, the least threatening, saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Uh, and, uh, and that was, uh, as we see in our passage, only the first of Peter's three denials. Uh, and according to Matthew and Mark, this disowning of Jesus uh, wasn't shamefaced or hesitant. No, he cries out a curse. I don't know this man. I've got nothing to do with him. I, I, I mean, it's absolutely full-on betrayal from Peter. And here is the key. Both of these men, as a result of these grave failures, were brought to the very verge of self-despair by what they'd done. So on that Good Friday night, we find them immersed, both of them, in feelings of self-reproach and humiliation. So Judas is seized with remorse, Matthew 27, verse 3, and cries out, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. And Peter... Luke 22, verse 62, went outside and wept bitterly. But that is where the similarity ends. For the gospel tell us that Peter got himself together again and even goes down in history as one of the greatest apostles, whereas Judas committed suicide and goes down in history as one of the greatest apostates. It's extraordinary, isn't it? One chapter, one yields an apostle, the other an apostate. And I want to look at at, at each of these men, the apostate and the apostle, Judas and Peter, and ask two questions tonight as we prepare for Easter. First, what were the particular weak points in each of these men that led to their individual failures? And secondly, what are the key points in the spiritual response of each of these men to their failures, which led to their very different destinies? It's for the Lord to decide but almost overwhelmingly, certainly, uh, Judas is in hell and, and Peter is in the new creation. So let's start with Judas. Why did he uh, go and negotiate with the chief priests and the officers of the temple of the guard? What led to his betrayal of Jesus? Well, the Gospels are clear. They tell us two things. First of all, we learn that, can we see chapter 22, verse 3, if you've got it in front of you there, page 1057, Do you see the words, Satan entered Judas? Satan entered Judas. And what we learn here is that the response, the reason for Judas's decision making was not simply circumstantial things or emotional things, intellectual things. No, uh, there was a spirit of malice at work manipulating him. Satan entered Judas. At some level here, Luke tells us that Judas allowed himself to be so spiritually deceived, so spiritually blind, that that he becomes little more than a a pawn in a diabolical game of chess 
So let's see what the reality is here. We learn in verse 31, if you can see and look down, that Satan had sought to test all the disciples. So Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. And the word all of you here, of course, is plural. So Satan was going to come against that band of disciples and seek out someone, someone who was the weak link. Somebody in that chain. And the hostility of Satan is clearly recognized here as one of the reasons for Judas's failure. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So please don't think that that this dynamic assault was unique to Judas. The Bible insists, ladies and gentlemen, that we are naive if we don't realize the devil has a file on us. Londoners hate to be called naive, but we are unless we realize this, that this is the reality. And he wants to come among Christians and destroy our witness and our lives. You realize that, don't you? Satan wants to destroy your witness and life. So Ephesians 4 verse 27 cries out, and this is so serious, do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give him a foothold. And if we're wise, we'll not underestimate the devil's potential to influence us. His strategy of insinuation to our minds is unbelievably clever. He is the master psychiatrist. He knows how to exploit every weakness we've got, every appetite we've got, every ambition we've got, every frustration we feel. Please understand, they are footholds. That's why we've got to self-lead so well. We've got to be so aware. We've got to have others who know us. And he's very personal. Your enemy, the devil, wrote Peter later in his life, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Well, Peter knew what he was talking about, didn't he? As we look at Monday, Thursday. He prowls around like a roaring lion. Grow up. Don't be naive, Peter says. That's how you ought to think of him. Not with horns and a fork, but as a roaring lion. And so the question is here, of course, what was the foothold which Judas gave Satan? What was the foothold which Judas gave Satan? And we have it as we look down in this remarkable text, Luke 22, verses 4 and 5. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. They agreed to give him money. Matthew puts it even more bluntly, where Judas asks, how much will you give if I hand him over to you? How much will you give? Matthew 20, verse 15. So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. There's ample evidence, in fact, in the Gospels that money held a fatal fascination for Judas. And he's not alone. John tells us of a story six days before Jesus' death. Uh, Jesus was at Bethany 
with his friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And while they were eating, Mary took a very expensive uh, uh, jar of perfume and poured it on Jesus' feet. And you know what Judas says? You remember, don't you? Do you remember what he says? Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? He sees this being done. He says, what about the poor? John's comment is very cynical, for he adds, Judas said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and helped himself out of the common purse. That was the sort of man Judas was, you see. And Jesus knew about Judas, but the interesting thing was that he didn't respond to Judas's bitter, niggling comment by questioning the sincerity of his altruism. No, he simply replies... Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you. You can help them whenever you want, but you won't always have me. It's a very subtle reply because it expresses the fundamental difference in priorities of Mary and Judas. Mary, this woman burning with love for Christ and expressing it in irrational extravagance. Just expressing her love for Jesus. A year's wages broken over his feet. But Judas, you see, a man whose heart burned with the love of money, expressed that in cold, calculating economics. What share could I have had? What a waste. Oh, he may have been a do-gooder of a kind. He may have distributed to the poor, but but his heart was barren of the sort of extravagant self-sacrifice for God which Mary had. So Judas's Christianity and his charity was no more than enlightened self-interest. Maybe he did want to build the kingdom of God, but you can be sure it would be a materialistic kingdom. What's in it for me as I do this? How am I looked after? It would be fair shares for all and a big share for Judas. John Stott wrote these words in his commentary in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and you'll have heard me quote them before, but I find them wonderful to look at pre-Easter. He wrote this, It's a wonderfully liberating experience when the desire to please God overtakes the desire to please ourselves, and when love for others displaces love for self. He goes on in that quote, true freedom is not the freedom from responsibility to God and others in order to live for myself, but freedom from myself in order to live for God and others. And Judas never got close. He never got there. Gosh, wouldn't it be great this Easter to inch a little further towards that? Please pray for me that I do. Judas was not ready for such sweeping renunciation of self-interest. That's why his love for Christ was conditional, and that's why his kiss turned out to be a treacherous kiss. So he was the kind of disciple who supports Jesus while he thinks there's going to be something in it for him. But when it becomes clear that Jesus was not going Judas's way, he abandoned him. It's idolatry. His faith wasn't in God. His faith was in his agenda for God. It's idolatry. And how much of our so-called Uh, Christianity lies under the same judgment, I wonder. Because isn't that fundamental egotism in all of us? Isn't there a Judas-centered self around trying to conceal the facts uh, uh, by our good deeds? But what's under them? 
It was Luther who said, even my best deeds are filthy rags. I think it was something of this that he was seeing. Judas followed Jesus a long way, but he never followed him to Gethsemane. He never got to the point of praying the servant prayer, Father, not what I want, but what you want. He never got to Gethsemane. He never echoed those words in his heart. And it is a key thing to be thinking about as we head towards Easter. Father, not what I want, but what you want. That is what our master prayed. And let's be beware that it was materialism that led to Judas's failure. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And Judas wanted to follow Jesus, keeping one foot firmly in his bank balance. That had to have 30 pieces of silver in it. Whatever the cost, that would save him. And the the devil exploited the foothold. We think it's a private thing. It's not private to the devil. He exploited that foothold. And it made a traitor of Judas. So beware. And that brings us to the second thing about Judas. We have to think about what was his response to this spiritual failure at the critical hour. Well, Luke in his gospel doesn't actually tell us about it, but Matthew, uh, 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 I've already mentioned the passage, but he speaks about it. Here is the response. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Maybe there is somebody this evening who is saying to themselves, do you know, I'm, I'm a Judas. You're distressed by what uh, we're talking about. You see yourself in the mirror here. You ask yourself, what have been any of the motives for my Christian living? You're, you're saying my discipleship has play, failed. I, I've set my heart on material things. I've neglected spiritual priorities. Um, if any of my colleagues at work knew that I was Christian, they'd be most shocked. I've never told them. Uh, I, I've made up my own rules, so I'd be a Christian, and uh, some of them are despicable. I've betrayed the Lord in my life. I've pursued my own selfish ambition. Oh, maybe my Christian life looks prosperous and pious on the outside, but I know it's a sham. It's hypocrisy. I'm a Judas. But you're not, you know. You're not a Judas. Not yet. Don't you think we've all failed? Please, as you sit here, don't you think we've all failed? It isn't failure that makes a man or woman a Judas. Brothers, sisters, it's despair. It's despair that makes someone a Judas. Despair. He went out and hanged himself. 
Matthew 27, verse 5. It isn't failure that makes a man or woman a Judas. It's despair. Some people actually suggest that this passage proves Judas repented. I had a commentary that said that. What nonsense. Since when has suicide been an act of a penitent? No, Judas did not repent. This was the final seal on his fate. You know, there was hope for Judas. In spite of his demonic influences, in spite of his materialism, in spite of his treachery, there was hope for him. So long as life remained, the possibility of repentance remained. But Judas did not repent. He gave way instead to something many people mistake for repentance, namely self-pity. He looked at his heart and he saw the cowardice, the greed, the disloyalty, And and, and there wasn't hope, you see. He heard the devil say to him, you've no right to be a disciple. The devil whispered that in his ear. You've got no right to live. And Judas agreed with the devil. Yes, he said, I've let myself down. I've betrayed innocent blood. I've betrayed innocent blood, he shouted at the religious authorities. I'm useless. I've no right to go on existing. But that isn't repentance. Do you know what that is? It's remorse, Matthew 27. Judas was seized with remorse, with despair. Remorse is simply wounded pride. Remorse is self-centered self-pity. It's not feeling sorry for my sin. It's feeling sorry for myself. You see it quite often in pastoral ministry. People are overwhelmed with sorrow, but but it's not before God. They're just sorry for themselves and how things have turned out. Weeping for themselves. But it's remorse. It's self-pity, I'm afraid. And remorse leads a man or woman to despair because the one person they can never forgive is themselves. You see, your eyes are focused totally on you. It's the prodigal in the pigsty who says, what a fool I've been, but then doesn't do what the prodigal does so well, which he says, well, I've got to go home and I've got to go back to my father and say sorry. You see, this this person stays in the pigsty. Judas stayed in the pigsty. He realized he was in the pigsty, but he wouldn't go back to his father and say, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He wouldn't say sorry. No, with remorse, you stay in the pigsty and you hang yourself. And this was Judas's final arrogant act of self-determination. Tragically, his suicide closed the door to repentance. He showed himself to be a man who would not come to God in search of mercy, but who would rather despair and die. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a reason I called my daughter Mercy, and this is part of the reason. I called her Mercy because it is so important for Christian living. Or we stay in the pigsty. And that's what remorse always does to us. 
And I've seen it again and again. Remorse keeps its pride and loses its soul in the process. It's a pride thing. It hasn't the humility to get up out of the pigsty and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm so sorry, God. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. It doesn't deal with mercy. So Judas didn't perish because he failed. Please get that out of your mind. He perished because he would not repent. And that is where Judas is so different from the other disciple who failed on that first Good Friday, Peter. Let's look at him now. Well, uh, uh, we've looked at Judas, but I guess it's the question, of course, uh, what was Peter's weak point? What was his weak point? And again, in this remarkable chapter in Luke 22, one of the great sin chapters in all of Scripture, we see that Peter's weak point, of course, was pride. Can we look at verses 31 to 33? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, what was Peter's response to Jesus' prayer? Jesus says, I've prayed for you. What does Peter do? But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and death. In other words, no need to pray for me, Jesus. Oh, no. Jesus, don't, you don't, don't waste your prayers on me. I'm with you all the way. And Jesus responded, you know, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you'll deny me three times. Do you see? Peter is almost saying, he's saying, I don't need your prayers, Lord. I won't let you down. In John 13, verse 37, he says, I'll lay down my life for you. In Mark 14, verse 29, he says, even if all the others fail, I won't. Not me, not Peter. I'll be there. Peter's theme in all the Gospels is, others may fail, not me. Prison and death, no problem. No problem. Don't even bother praying for me, Jesus. I'm there. And you know, I've, I've felt the same echo of those, to my shame, from my own lips. I know I remember being taught in the final verse of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, where the final verse, where the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I was taught by one group to sing, shall have, shall have my soul, my life, my all. And I've stopped saying it now. <laughs> I sang it out. Don't worry, Lord, prison and death, you'll have it. I'm there. It's full of self-confidence. We want to do our bit for Jesus. We want to make him proud of us. We want to prove to him we're worthy of him. Like children who say to their parents, look, daddy, watch me jump. Watch me jump, daddy. So we want to earn Jesus' respect. Peter wanted Jesus' admiration. Prison and death, I'll be there. But you know, we can never earn the love of Christ. We are selfish, vain, and weak. No, he wins our love. We never win his love. He wins our love. Jesus does not love Peter because he is faithful, because he is a good disciple, because he's willing to go to prison and death for his 
master's sake. Now, Jesus loves Peter in spite of the fact that he is unfaithful, in spite of his treachery, in spite of his failure. And you know, this Easter, our love for Christ must be built on a humiliating self-knowledge. And you know, that can be difficult because we're used to presenting well. But that's what our love for Christ must be based on. It's built on verse 34. I tell you, Peter, I tell you, Rico, before the cock crows today, you'll deny me three times that you know me. That's what it's based on. Our denials of Christ. And of course, Peter didn't believe that, that he denied Jesus three times. How could he? What, me? Let Jesus down? Me? Peter? It's impossible. And his proud refusal uh, to accept Jesus' warning was, of course, the first step to betrayal. It's Sunday school now, isn't it? The three steps to betrayal, you know them, don't you? Pride was the first one. Pride. I'll go to prison and death. The second one, of course, was prayerlessness. Verse 46, again in this chapter. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Don't worry, I can sleep because I won't fall into temptation. I'm fine. Prayerlessness. And then, of course, he was unprepared. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. But the root of his failure, of course, was pride. It's such a dangerous thing. I mean, if only he'd been a bit more humble, if only he'd taken Jesus' warning, if only he'd been a bit more humble, he'd have prayed for protection against temptation instead of sleeping. He'd have said, you know, I've got to get up Monday morning to read my Bible because I can't be trusted unless I say my prayers. I can't be trusted. Lord Jesus, please be with me today that I'll live for you. If only he'd been a bit more humble, he, he wouldn't have tried to act alone. He'd have seen his inner weakness and not tried to prove anything to anyone else. But he said, gosh, I've got to get to my fellowship group Tuesday night. I need people around me. I need to be at church on Sunday. I need my brothers and sisters to help me. But instead we get verse 61. After three denials, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Now, here's the question. So I've been thinking about verse 61. What was in that look? Can you imagine? The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Third cock crows. The Lord Jesus looks at him. What was in our master's look? That look from Jesus. Ever thought about that? Was it reproach? Was it resentment? Was it disdain? I suspect... He saw love there, don't you think? Love for a failure. Don't you think that was in the look? Love born not out of admiration, love born out of a very heart whose very nature is love. Victor Hugo said, life's greatest happiness is to know we're loved. And through the rest of Peter's life, don't you think he was sustained by that look, that look that he knew would actually go to the cross so that he could be forgiven? 
for the rest of his life as Peter ended up crucified under upside down. Don't you think that he thought about that look again and again and again? So Peter went out and wept bitterly. And the question is, of course, what tears were they? What were the tears? Are they the deceitful tears of a child trying to manipulate its parents by crying? Or are they the sentimental tears of a romantic trying to relieve overall emotions? Or are they tears of love? What are the tears? Love now conscious of its unworthiness. Love scalded by shame. You see, Judas hanged himself. Would Peter's tears lead to a self-tied noose in the same way? Is he going to go the direction of self-pity? Are they like Judas's tears, tears of remorse, tears of wounded pride and self-pity, or are they tears of repentance? That's the question that Luke 22 throws up. What are the tears? Tears of repentance, tears that herald a new beginning, one based not on self-confidence and pride any longer, but on self-knowledge, humility, and prayerful dependence. One that says, oh, Lord God, I now relate to you through your son's performance for me. I need his righteousness. I can't believe he's given me that righteousness that covers my sin and failure. I was in the pigsty, but he came and died for me and brought me home. So that the tears of the prodigal, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son, but I want to come home. And thank you that Jesus paid so I can come home. So that's the question, isn't it? Who are we uh, uh, this Easter? Because the issue is, it's not our failure that marks us out as a Judas or a Peter, but our response to that failure. We've all disappointed him. We've all betrayed the Lord. We've all sold him for silver. We've all denied him. We're no different from these men, are we? But, but it's the, the, the issue is how we respond. If we're honest, disappointment, betrayal, selling for silver, denial, they're there. But how do we respond? I mean, are our hearts this Easter full of despair or full of faith? Can I ask that? Where is your heart? Is it full of despair or full of faith as we relate to Christ, to God through Christ's performance? Are our tears of remorse or repentance? So who are you this Easter? Who are you this Easter? Judas or Peter? Let's pray. I'll set out and go back to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Oh, Father God, thank you so much that Jesus modeled the prayer to get us home and then died the death so that we can come home. 
Lord, we pray that our spiritual lives would be defined not by remorse, but by repentance. We pray that this extraordinary lesson of Luke 22 would be with us this Easter. That we grow in our knowledge of ourselves, but more than that, in our knowledge of your love. Oh, Father God, our lives depend on it. Please, by your spirit, through your word, teach us this lesson. Amen.